Let's join together again in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we have been singing that our Savior Jesus is the King, King of all, King of our lives. And just pray that now by your Spirit, he would be the King of this moment, that he would speak to us through your almighty and living and powerful word. And we pray in his name. Amen. There's been a lot of mention so far this evening in our songs and in even our readings about monarchy, about kingdom, about kingship or royalty. I wonder what comes to your mind when you think of those words, when you think of a monarch or when you think of royalty. I suppose living where we do, it's hard not to think um, of our own royal family, whatever your opinion of them is. Maybe you think of them with great fondness. Maybe you have a real sense of loyalty to them. Uh, maybe you, you think of all the pomp and, and all that goes on. I mean, they, they definitely know how to put a wedding on. If they don't know how to do anything else, they definitely know how to get their children married off. Maybe you think of scandal. Maybe you think of some people who I won't mention in the royal family who, who get themselves into a bit more trouble, perhaps, than they do anything good for us. Maybe you think of them as very costly. Maybe as a taxpayer, you're very concerned about the amount of money, of your money, that goes towards funding them. Or maybe you think it's worth it. Maybe, a little bit more like me, you're fairly indifferent to it all. But perhaps when I mention the word monarch, you, you think of some sort of position of power or a monarch who rules and who reigns. And in the UK, we do talk about our queen reigning, long to reign over us and all that. But the reality is we have a constitutional monarchy, which is just a slightly polite way of saying that she doesn't have that much power. She doesn't have the power that kings and queens of England had in days gone by. My mind goes to, to the Brexit saga a couple of years ago. I know you don't want to be reminded of Brexit, but... Do you remember when Boris Johnson asked the Queen to prorogue Parliament? And she did it. And then the judge said, no, you can't do that. And I thought, what's going on? She's the Queen. Surely she can do whatever she likes, but apparently not. She doesn't have that much power. A judge, albeit it was in the Supreme, Por Supreme Court, but a judge overruled her decision. And right across the world, there, there are different views of monarchy. In Thailand, for example, practically everybody likes their king. It'd be quite dangerous, actually, to say something against the king in public. Nobody speaks ill of him, but his powers are very limited, even compared to our queen. This is very different from the kingdom in Saudi Arabia, for example. No talk of the Newcastle takeover, which is much closer to an absolute kingdom where the crown has full power, and isn't afraid to use it, even when that seems cruel and unjust. And I think undoubtedly it is cruel and unjust. But there isn't anybody else to appeal to in that country. If the crown decides something, well, that's it. Or another contrast, I suppose, would be like somewhere like America. And without going into the history, I mean, they rejected the last monarch they had, George III, quite publicly. And they're a republic, and they're proud to be so, usually. They're proud that they're a democratic republic and none of this monarchy stuff going on. So there's plenty of different approaches to the idea of a kingdom, to the idea of monarchy and royalty right across the world. And it's important that as we come to think of God as king in the Bible, 
that we have a clear view of just exactly what we're talking about because kingdoms on earth are run differently. And whether we realize it or not, sometimes these ideas can color our view of the kingship of God, and it's important that we try not to let that happen. Because in the Bible, there's no understanding of what we might call a constitutional monarchy, whereby a, a monarch has no real power. They're just kind of there overseeing. If you are a king or a queen in the Bible, you reign. And God, is, as a king, is a king who reigns. So just to be clear, um, there are two ways in the, in the Bible where God is spoken about as being king. He's spoken about as being king in two different ways. And the first way that God is spoken of as king is that he is king over all. For example, um, we read from Psalm 103 earlier, one verse we didn't read, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. And then a verse from Daniel 4, he does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? God rules over everything, heaven and earth. Absolutely everything that is, is reigned over by God. He made everything and he rules over it. It's all his. Sometimes we talk about this as his sovereignty of his being in control. He is king over all places and all events. Don Carson, uh, a commentator, has put it this way. He says, in a sense, you and I are in the kingdom of God, whether we like it or not. You cannot be in the kingdom of you cannot not be in the kingdom of God in this sense. If he really does reign over all, even those who disbelieve him, those who hate him, and who think that there are other gods, they are in God's kingdom. God is king over everything. But the second way that God is king is that he is king over his own people specifically. He is king over all, but he is also specifically king over the covenant people that he calls to himself. So this is the people that he calls, first with the covenant with Abraham, which we looked at a few weeks ago, then through the covenant with Moses, right down through the Old Testament as the nation of Israel, and then through Jesus and the new covenant. Remember last week we thought about the new covenant in his blood, then to us. So yes, in the first sense of God is king, he's king to everyone in the whole world because it all belongs to him and he's sovereign over it all. But in this second sense, you only belong to this kingdom if you're part of this covenant community. And in the Old Testament, which is where we're at at the moment, this is the nation of Israel. God is their king. He's delivered them from Egypt. He struck down the Egyptians. We saw part of that last week in the Passover. And the story is familiar. After that, Pharaoh lets the people go. Um, after he changes his mind and they get through the Red Sea, then they go to Sinai. They get the law. And they disobey God, and then they wander around in the desert for 40 years. And eventually, after Moses dies and Joshua leads them, they get to the promised land. And God, as their king, has delivered them. He's led them into battle. He's guided them. He's given them victory. He's given them the law. He's punished them as well at times. But God has reigned over them through all of this. He has used human leaders, Moses and Joshua, I've mentioned, but not kings, not someone where you say, well, after you, your son will reign or your daughter will reign, just people that he has called. And after they go, get into the promised land, they go through cycles that are actually pretty depressing when you study them. 
We saw just a small snippet of that in Judges 2. A few generations after Joshua dies, they forget that God spared them, that he's saved them, that he's provided for their needs, and they become virtually indistinguishable from all the other nations around them. They start to worship other gods, the Baals and their Ashtoreths. And so God punishes them in different ways. Sometimes they're attacked by other tribes like the Midianites and others. Sometimes they lose in battle. And all of this drives them back to God and they call out for mercy and forgiveness then. And God always responds in mercy. He raises up a judge, someone to rule over them. This judge will lead them into battle, will reestablish them. He will renew their vows to the Lord and they promise to serve him faithfully. But it turns out that this is only good for as long as the judge lives. In another two or three generations again, it's all forgotten about. And they slide back into idolatry and into disobedience to God. And so follows another round of judgment for God and appeal for help. God raises up another judge and the cycle just seems to happen again and again and again. And it seems like each time they wander away from God, they wander further and further. So much so that the last few chapters of Judges are pretty grim if you want to read them in public because they're grotesque and barbaric. God's people end up far, far away from him. And we see through the later chapters of the book of Judges a repeated line, in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. It's repeated several times and it's how the book ends. It's as if the book ends by crying out to God, Lord, we need a king to sort all of this out because when we have no king, everybody just does as they want. And I think sometimes we give the Israelites a, a bad rap for wanting a king, but actually wanting a king in itself isn't really the problem. Having, having a leader isn't the problem. God has given them human leaders in the past after all. Whilst they weren't kings and whilst they were sinful, flawed people who made mistakes, Generally speaking, they were good for the people. They led them well. They bring God's words to the people. So it's not really an issue that the people wanted a leader. But what we soon see is that the problem is their motivation for wanting a leader. See, they didn't really want someone who would keep them more secure in their theology as God's people, someone who would make sure that they were faithful to God, someone who'd, who would protect them morally and ethically from backsliding as their ancestors had done. That's not why they want a king. They want a king so that they can be just like all the nations around them. We're being attacked, we're being defeated, and it must be because we don't have a king, but they're all doing very well out there, and they have a king. We want to be like them. And they say to God's prophet Samuel, now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. That's the only stipulation they give, that it's like the nations around them. We want to be like them. We want their constitutional arrangement. They seem to have pretty decent civil order. Not everybody just doing as they see, see best. We want that. So far from wanting a king who would ensure that they were faithful to Yahweh, this is actually a, a complete rejection of going his way. God, we don't want you as our king. 
with these judges appointed. No, no, we want to give the authority that you're meant to have to a human being the way the other nations do. And although God warns them that it'll come back to bite them, he allows them to do it. In effect, he says, okay, that's fine, but you will be sorry. And so King Saul comes on the scene. And, you know, at first this seems like a really great thing. He, he's, he's a humble guy. He, he looks like a king. He's well built. In a few short years, though, it all goes downhill. One commentator says that in a few short years, he becomes a corrupt, paranoid, fearful, brutal, and ungodly man who craves more power. Anybody he sees as a threat to his authority, he wants to kill. It's a mess. It's a pretty damning indictment. But God has mercy, as he has done in the past, and God raises up another king, King David. Now, David isn't perfect, far from it. If you know about David's life, you will know that he is far, far from perfect. But he does start out pretty well. And that's where we joined the story tonight when we read from Second Samuel 7. David becomes king in chapter 5, and then we jumped in at chapter 7. So he's a pretty new king, although he is established. And in effect, what God is doing in these early days is he's showing the people what a good king is. David, he calls a man after his own heart. So Saul is gone, David becomes king, and initially he turns out to be really very good. He secures Israel's borders, he unites the tribes, and he moves the capital to Jerusalem, which is the same site as modern-day Jerusalem. And so things settle down. The people get to enjoy a bit of peace and prosperity. It's all good. We read, after the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around them, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. David has been in Jerusalem long enough to build a palace. That seems obvious. And now he wants to move on to the next thing. What's the next thing I have to get in order to restore this nation? And for David, who is a man after God's own heart, the natural thing is to think about worship. David knows his scriptures, and he knows that in Deuteronomy, Moses foresaw a permanent temple in place of the tent that the Ark of the Covenant had been moving around in. So he thinks, well, I should build that. That would be a good thing to do. And I'm sure he had good motives in doing that. But God intervenes through the prophet Nathan, and he says, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? And I think the point that God is making here is that he is the one who's going to take the initiative as to when the temple is built. Not a human being, not David. It's not that what David was thinking was sinful or bad or wrong, but God is the one who will take the initiative. And I hope we've seen that on these Sunday evenings. God always takes the initiative in the turning points of the Bible. Abraham certainly didn't decide as an elderly man that he would start a new nation, move hundreds of miles from home, call them Israel, and all of, all of that in his old age. No, it was God's plan and God's initiative. It's the same thing with Moses. Again, he wasn't uh, a young man. 
He was somebody who we think probably had some kind of speech impediment. He was not somebody who was a leader. He was working as a shepherd in the middle of the desert. It wasn't his idea to go back publicly, speak publicly, something he couldn't do, and lead the people hundreds of miles through the desert over the next half century or so. I don't think that would have been in Moses' mind. It was God's plan. It was his initiative. And so it's going to be with David. Now then, God says, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I did that. I have been with you wherever you've gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men of the earth. So no, it's not that way round. God will have a temple, but he will decide how it's done. And in the end, it was built by David's son, Solomon. But God has other plans for David. Um, there's a bit of a, a pun in the Hebrew here, which is probably worth noting, because David says he wants to build a house for the Lord. But God says, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. He actually uses the same word, house. You want to establish a house for me? No, no, I will establish a house for you. And when he says house in that sense, he means a, a household, a, a dynasty, a kingdom. And here's how I'm going to do it. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So David's son Solomon is the one who builds a house, a temple for the Lord. But there's more to God's promise than that. Because this kingdom which will come through David's son will last forever. Verse 16 at the end there. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So David's throne is going to be around forever. And I suppose there are two possible ways that that could happen. I suppose the first way is that if each king has an heir who becomes the king or queen after them, and that goes on and on and on and on forever, that's possible. That could happen. But there is another way this could happen, and that is if one of David's descendants himself would live forever. And this is how it happens. Did you know that yesterday... It was 10 weeks until Christmas. It's either depressing or exciting, depending on your perspective. But we often read words from Isaiah chapter 9 at Christmas time, and these are familiar. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Here we have a son, a son given an heir who will reign forever. This is none other than the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Somehow this son, this king, is going to be identified as God himself, the everlasting father. Now, 
That is the amazing promise given to David by the prophet Nathan. Now, David lived about a thousand years before Jesus would be born. A lot of things happened in those thousand years. The Davidic kingdom becomes corrupt. A mere two generations after David, the kingdom splits into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and David's line only rules over the south. Kings come and kings go, with the new one coming in, often slaughtering all the family and the children of the previous one. It's a brutal mess. Sin and idolatry are pretty rampant. Eventually, the leaders are, are carted off into captivity under the Assyrian Empire. Another century and a half goes by, and the Davidic dynasty itself is so corroded and corrupted, despite occasional times of revival and renewal. Some kings were good and didn't do evil in the sight of the Lord. But at the beginning of the 6th century, the Davidic line seems to be destroyed. Many of the leaders are taken into exile, this time under the Babylonian Empire, which has replaced the Assyrian one. Now, in due course, God brings them back, initially only about 50,000 or so, which is quite a small number of them. They rebuild the temple that has been burned down. But in comparison with Solomon's temple, it's a pathetic thing. And there's still no king. By this time, the Persians are in control, which then becomes Greek rule, and then the Roman Empire. So we travel all the way down from B.C. to A.D., and there is still no restored Davidic king on the throne. The Israelites find themselves under the authority of one system or another, but it's not David. Now the regional superpower is Rome. The local monarchs are ruthless kings like the Herods, the sort of guy who would get his daughter to name what she wanted for her birthday and the head of John the Baptist would come on a platter. Nice guys. But then we come to the New Testament. And what is the very first line we read in the first book of the New Testament? This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Because this is the, the, the promise or the fulfillment of the promise of the eternal king the son of David. He's the Messiah or the Christ. Um, the word is the same, one in Greek, one in Hebrew. And all that Messiah or Christ means is anointed one. Kings in the Old Testament were anointed. David was anointed by Samuel. So Jesus is the anointed one. It's a way of saying that he is king, Messiah or Christ. It's a royal term. Jesus is the king. Peter acknowledges this in Matthew 16. We read the words that he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's then confirmed by God the Father himself that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise that he would one day establish the one he would call his son as the, the everlasting Davidic king. It happens at the baptism, but it also happens at the transfiguration, which we read, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, I think it's verse 14, God says of this future king, he will be my, my son, I will be his father. And here God the Father says, this one, this is my son. And as he is transfigured, uh, we can't possibly describe what that might have looked like, but Peter and James and John, they briefly see him in all his royal glory, the king of heaven, the almighty God, everlasting father, Prince of Peace, the great successor to Abraham, Moses, Elijah, the one in David's line who would come, yes, to save his people, 
but to rule and reign over God's covenant people in a new kingdom. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, he would later say. Now I realize that um, tonight so far, um, and we're near the end, uh, has been pretty heavy. Uh, well done for sticking with it. I realize we've just talked a lot of Bible. We haven't talked a lot of application. And we've gone from Moses to Jesus in one sermon, so we've done pretty well. Um, but as we've seen the people cry out for a king to lead them, and as God has responded by supplying them with a king, but in that, uh, establishing a kingdom that will never end, hopefully, at the very least, we've seen how that all culminates in Jesus, our ever-reigning king. And so as this talk uh, comes to an end, I just want to offer up a few reflections from all we've seen together. And I think the first thing that is there to see is that there are both benefits and limits to human leaders. There are certainly benefits to good leaders, both in the church and in government and in other areas. God uses people, ordinary people, young and old, people like Moses and Abraham and you and me in leadership for good. It's why the process of choosing our elders in church as we've been doing as a congregation over the past while, it's why that's so important. It's not the case, as some people do, that we should instinctively mistrust human leaders. We should pray for them, that God would use them for good. But of course, every human leader is limited. Some leaders are downright bad for us. Some of the kings who ruled Israel definitely show us that. But even the good ones have their limits. Like the judges that God raised up, they couldn't deal with the problem of sin ultimately. They might have steered the people in a good direction, but even the best, most faithful leader of a church will not produce perfect people. Please don't look at your ministers and expect us to do that. We can't. And they also won't live forever. The judges died, even King David would die, and he ceased to rule. No human leader can be an answer to our greatest problems. Only King Jesus can do that. And so the second thing that I want us to see in reflection on tonight's talk is that Jesus deserves our obedience. Only his rule can bring blessing eternally. We just won't find that in any other human being, a leader, an influencer, an opinion former, whoever they are. Only he deserves our worship and our obedience. We worship him as our king. We sang earlier, your majesty, I can but bow. This has to be our attitude to the king, and we obey. In royal robes, I don't deserve. I live to serve your majesty. I know I issued this challenge last week, but I want to issue it again, because if you are one of God's people, I have to ask, is Jesus the king of your life? Does every area of your life belong to him? Or is there something you're keeping to yourself? If Jesus is King and Lord, then we need to challenge ourselves. I've been challenged as I've looked at this this week. We need to look at the areas of our lives where we mess up most often or where we know we live in outright disobedience. And we need to put Jesus in charge. And the third reality that I want us to think about is the fact, though, that this is pretty difficult for us. And it's difficult because we're sinful like the people in Judges, we reject God and we go our own way, and we do it often. There's no point in kidding ourselves. We forget about Him so easily in our days, 
We forget about what he has done for us. And that's just the stark reality for us. But the calling for us as followers of Jesus is to fight that. Because no matter how much we feel, unlike the judges, unlike King David, our king will not die. He has died and he's come back never to die again. He will never cease to rule. He will never stop being our king. So even when we don't feel like it, even when it's not naturally what we would do, we need to consciously obey him. It won't always be easy. It will be a fight. The Bible promises us that. It will be a struggle. It won't be difficult for us to put away things in our lives that we do naturally, but we know that he's calling us not to do. But this is the call for all who follow Christ, to bow the knee, to acknowledge him as king, and to live for him. Let's pray together. Our God, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you that even though we are flawed human people and sinful people, Lord, you choose to love us. You choose to raise up leaders among us. You choose to bless us through our King, Jesus Christ. Lord, we confess that often we are prone to wander. We are prone, like the people of Judges, to go back to old vices, to old ways of living. We're prone to forget you. But Lord, thank you that even out of that broken system, you raised up a king and a kingdom that would never end. And so, Lord, we just ask tonight that you would help us to acknowledge Jesus as king, to follow him, to live for him, to submit to him, to obey him, and to love him. In Jesus' name, amen.